You're listening to the Functional Nerds Podcast with your hosts, Patrick Hester and Tracy Townsend. Welcome back, friends. Please make sure your pod seat and tray table are in their upright and locked position. The airlock is sealed and docking clamps have been released for an on-time departure to the Functional Nerdverse. Well, here we are in the, in the relaxation of a post-Hugo nomination universe. Whatever will be, will be. We get to be just zen and chill and move on. <laughs> we have been we have been pushing it pretty hard, uh, yeah. trying to trying to get a nomination this year. So yeah, I know how yeah. much you want to go to China. I I mean, gonna level with you here. Would have would have uh, much preferred going to Chicago in air quotes because that's like you know forty minutes away, a little less actually for me. Yeah, Chengdu looks like they're they're staged to put on a, a great a great ceremony this year and everything. And it, I it, it, would be if, would be if, delighted if, to be on Zoom. <laughs> if it happens, if it happens that we we end up being nominated, and it, it, we have to we have to designate someone because I won't be able to go to China either. So as an example, with uh, with one of these, I think it's this one, I've got, I'm pointing to Hugo's yeah. in the background. I had to designate yeah. someone uh, to be in London mm-hmm. to receive this for me. And mm-hmm. so I looked around and I thought, who is one of my favorite people in the universe that I could potentially ask to help with this? And it was Gail Carriker. And I asked Gail, I said, Gail, are you going to London? And she said, are you fucking kidding me? Of course I'm going to London. I'm not going to pass up a chance to go to London. (laughs) And so Gail went, and now Gail's here. (laughs) The universe has come full circle. (laughs) And I got to say on on stage in front of thousands of people, hi, I'm not Gail Carragher. I'm Patrick Hessler in a Gail Carragher meet suit, which was like wonderful. Yeah, I got the, I had the honor of accepting a Hugo Award for Patrick and it was the best time. I cannot recommend this highly enough. Everybody, it's so much better to be like the person accepting and not like actually under stress for being nominated. Like whatever happens. It was, I, I do have to tell my favorite story and since Patrick already swore like this is fine which was <laughs> I was sitting in the audience listening to everybody being nominated and I did not have my gloves on um, because it was quite warm for London um, and then I uh, was like oh well just in case I have to go up there I better start putting my gloves on and then they called Patrick's name and I was like oh shit <laughs> really loudly in the, in the like lull silence before the, before the cheering started and my, my kids started laughing at me anyway so I got to go up on the stage and and then I got to walk around carrying uh carrying a Hugo around all evening Maybe and feel like, and everybody yeah everybody coming up and congratulating me and me being like oh it's not me but like thank you I'm having the best time my uh, understanding and, and- Go ahead. I was going to say, and you got to go to all the parties and you get to do all the Hugo stuff. I did. Cool. And, and Kate had accepted, Kate Elliott had accepted for two people. And so she was walking around carrying two Hugos and I was yeah. like, walk around with her. And we became total besties <laughs> that, that evening. <laughs> it was, it was great because <laughs> we were just having fun because like there was no stress. <laughs> the Hugo award itself and its fundamental design is it's, it, it's always a heavy piece of hardware, but it's also just structurally speaking, a little stressful to contemplate, like where does one and how should one. And I, I've been told by some other people who have been 
part of the Hugo Awards ceremony, you know, some of them multiple times, that they'll even do a this is how you hold your Hugo yes. sort of thing. For, they did that. For yeah, they did that yeah. for us because because that one, the London one is etched glass. So like yeah. it was yeah. extra heavy and extra delicate. Uh, fortunately, archaeologist and material scientist. So I was like, <laughs> I can handle material objects <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but uh but yeah it was very heavy i was carrying it a little, a little bit like a baby up most of the time but also i was weaponized the entire evening um, yeah, you can go ramming uh, speed i could yeah it was yeah. it was yeah it was really it was it was a great time so yeah this is a, lives on in my memory uh would probably will forever so i get i got to i get to thank patrick for giving me that <laughs> gift it really was a a really delightful experience. Hey, I, I appreciated it because like I said, there was no way I could go. I couldn't mm-hmm. afford it. There's just no way. So I, I was right. so happy that Gail was able to do it. And I'm happy that you're here today to talk to I us again. Because you're so glad to be back. You're such a you're such a fun guest to have. And when you're on, it guarantees that Giles, Emily, and Michelle will listen to the episode. Yes. I, love that. <laughs> uh, I like to claim that I'm responsible for you guys being friends. I don't know if that's You true. are. No, yes. we say we tell that we tell that people all the time. In, in fact, so we we do a we do a, a twice monthly game night where we're playing a D campaign where Giles is running it. And uh, we have gone through a lot of other players, but uh, it started out with uh, uh, Emily and myself and a couple of other people. And then Emily's sister, Molly, started playing and we lost the other two people. They, they had to leave. And so we brought in Jeremy and Rhonda and uh, Jeremy's good friends with Giles and myself. And, and so we, we were and everybody. And so then it, then it become every time we have a new person like Rhonda come to the table, Rhonda's like, so how did you guys meet? <laughs> and then we go, well, there was a dinner with Gail Carriger. <laughs> Yay! And we explain it. So, yeah. I love yeah. being a linchpin. Uh, I'm always like, <laughs> I'm always doing that at events and like gatherings and stuff. I was like, oh, you people should know each other. I'm always trying to for, I think I'm like an innate matchmaker, but just for friends. <laughs> I'm like, you people should know each other. You people should know each other. Um, mm-hmm. Well, it's worked out well because uh, thanks to knowing Giles and Emily, I get to play with Edmund and pet Edmund. Uh, quite often. Who is so. the wonderful cat? My wonderful cat uh, has yes. knocked over. I have one of those folding laundry basket thing, yeah. mesh mm-hmm. things. Yeah. It, it's Saturday morning, everybody. So I've been doing laundry this morning. Uh, the My tiny cat has knocked that over and was busy like tearing it apart and playing in it and now is sitting inside it and staring through the mesh smugly at me. So. <laughs> of course. Yeah. Yeah. Lily put sends her regards. Mom. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I did this. I killed and made myself a Box bush in the same yeah. yes yeah it's like a tauntaun gutted it and climbed exactly inside. <laughs> exactly since we last saw each other in person I have gotten a dog and the dog is Ronan what, and what, they what uh, type what uh, border collie okay wow and he's so and he's, and he's <laughs> most of their most oh my of gosh we don't have video a, available for the guests to, to for, <laughs> uh, we, we, or, uh, gail is on video is what i mean but we don't the listeners the, your face just did a journey right there well i'm now <laughs> imagining a dog attempting to herd patrick <laughs> around yeah. his house all day every day because mm-hmm. border collies are usually for like yeah, yeah. large yeah. families <laughs> and and he's he's 50 pounds on a good day 
Okay. Uh, when, when we were doing a lot of training, I was giving them a lot of treats and it turned out that uh, when you give them a lot of treats, you're supposed to cut back on the kibble, which I did not think about. Uh, and he ended up gaining some weight, uh, but I've got him back and, and he's doing well. But uh, yeah, he, he, there's two things like he, he, he tries to herd and then he also digs. He's uh, a digger. Uh, and they warned me that he's a digger. And so yesterday he got in trouble because right at the base of my deck that leads into the backyard, he dug a gigantic fucking hole. <laughs> and I'm like, if I had gone out here at night, I wouldn't have seen that. I would have broke my ankle. Yeah. And and so I, I'm like, no. And I'm, I'm like, yelled at him. And so his reaction <laughs> was actually hilarious. He froze in the yard and then he started moving in slow motion. <laughs> Maybe he won't. Maybe. See the digging. <laughs> I can convince him I was nowhere near the hole. <laughs> so, so uh, when I when I talk about Giles and Michelle and 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 Emily, and then now Molly as well, uh, when I do go over there, we talk about stuff, and one of the things we talk about is what's Gail up to. Oh. And it, it's funny because they all like every all of them are into whatever Gail's doing. So even Molly will come up and go. You know, I read the latest book, or I read this, or I read that, and, and you know, blah, blah blah. So you have a new book. I have a new book coming out. Yes, the, hence the reason I pinged you guys is I was like, and oh yes. right, I should talk to functional arts because I have a new book, but also I miss you and haven't talked to you in a billion years. <laughs> uh, I always joke that Denver, because I have so many writer friends in particular in the Denver area now. I'm like, it, I should just move to Denver. <laughs> like, what am I, <laughs> what am I doing here? Because like everybody I love is in Denver now. Um, but yes, I have a new book and it's sci-fi and it's straight up like sci-fi sci-fi. I mean, it's still me and fluffy and fun and silly, but it is sci-fi. Um, and it's a proper trilogy, which was super exciting. <laughs> I know. I haven't, I realize uh, I've been in this game for well over a decade now and I've never actually written a series back to back where I wasn't publishing <laughs> within that <laughs> and therefore could not change anything in the book that was already on the shelf, much to my distress. Uh, so in this particular uh, instance, I got to write them all back to back and then like go in and make sure that the first one had foreshadowing for the third one. And like they all interweave with each other in very clever ways that make me happy. So uh, yeah, so it's uh, the like the on the ground pitch was the aliens are coming for us and they want our K-pop. Uh, it's kind of evolved a bit <laughs> since then, but yeah, essentially it's about an alien race that's uh, waging a culture war on the galaxy and attempting to take it over with art. And so I, I'm using to explore like the ideas of weaponized art, the idea of soft power um, and, you know, the power that it that like the experience spe specifically like concerts and musical spirit ex experiences are similar to like euphoric religious experiences and the sort of transformative nature of immersing mm -hmm. oneself in in art and music um yeah and so it's about a it's about a barista on a forgotten moon who uh who sings along with the music on the dome above him and then gets recruited by aliens to become a god a musical god and as one begins. does as one does be careful be careful singing out loud <laughs> and and since it has been a long time since you've been on the show uh, what's the name of the book gail <laughs> all right i should do that didn't I? uh the the series is called the tinkered star song series and the first one is called divinity 36 which is okay. uh the name of the the musical movement is the divinity and the moon is divinity 36 the that he starts his training program on 
kind of a little bit like a the voice survival program. Um, oh, yeah. okay. So Divinity 36, right? I should say the name of the darn thing. Uh, and it's the number 36. So should be easy yes. to find. Yeah. <laughs> and so, it has the best cover. So It, it does, does, yes. have a, does have a fun cover. It's yeah. a really fun yeah. cover. So I, I'm I'm really interested in this like recruitment move and the aliens that want to take over by way of art. So, all right, if if I'm get me in the head of the aliens here. Ah, I well, mean, that's again, the thing, right? Yeah. Is like part of the whole trilogy is why are they doing it? What's their reasoning? Are they? Is it for? they're good, our good, nobody's good, is it evil? We don't know. And as as the main character gets like recruited into this system and then is mm-hmm. like, oh my God, what have I done? What have I joined? <laughs> um, are Am I doing a good thing with my voice or a bad thing with it? Um, so yeah, it's a little bit like being kind of sucked into an artistic movement. Like, I don't know, AI or something like that. Um, and then mm-hmm. being like, wait, what are the consequences of this thing that I am doing? Um, right. So, yeah. So I'm not going to tell you. I'm not going to. I'm not going to. You, you have okay, to read it to get into the alien's head. Yeah. <laughs> I can tell you how facts my main character feels. But <laughs> yeah. But yeah, yeah, it's a journey for everybody. <clears throat> so on your on your website, you bill it as a YA space opera. And it I'm is. Kinda, to the best of my knowledge, you haven't done a lot of YA before unless I've like missed a whole piece of the character verse. <laughs> You have, um, actually, no, okay. uh, no, no, I'm, <laughs> I'm just being silly. Yeah, I had a my second series was a young adult series, but mm-hmm. it was in my um, steampunk universe. So right, it, it was a prequel to my steampunk universe. But yeah, mm-hmm. it was the finishing school series was was with Little Brown Books for mm-hmm. Young Readers (LBYR), and um, actually did really really well. I love YA. It's one of the genres I still read in regularly. I like, uh, in general, I like kind of how snappy and clean and sharp it has to be. I think it's, mm-hmm. I think there's a certain skill set that you bring to the table when you have to write that tight. Um, and I really admire that. I admire YA authors a lot. And so, yeah, yeah. so yeah, so I'd, so I did a, a series with them. Um, but I would say that this, I mean, it's kind of new about adult. It's a little bit kind of older YA, this right, one. Yeah. Um, but it is, yeah, the age of the protagonist and kind of the the story arc is definitely like a finding your place in the universe, finding your family, coming of age kind of arc for the for the characters. Sure. Um, but Fex, my main character is a refugee, and so he's kind of had to grow up really fast. So he comes off as a little bit older, mm-hmm. um, but most young adults like to read up a little bit anyway. Yeah, um, but yeah. yeah, yeah, it's technically Did, YA, which is why uh, it didn't sell to Trad because they were like, YA space opera does not sell, Gail. What are you doing? <laughs> and I was like, but Did, it's what I wanted to write. <laughs> Did, did they say it wouldn't be prudent? Ha, uh, very cute, Patrick. <laughs> Prudence is the character from, yeah, I, from I, the I finishing school. <laughs> Prudence is Custer Protocol. Uh, but yes. Oh, yes. that's right. Uh, I have a lot of books. You do not have to keep track of <laughs> Who was in the finishing school? Sophronia. Oh, that's right. Yeah, my sorry characters. That's okay. Like I said, I have um, <laughs> over 30 books now. So no one has to keep track of this nonsense except my beta readers. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I, I think I think, there's, I think there's, people are keeping track. <laughs> 
So it, it, having kind of you set up the parasol protectorate universe, the prequels to it, um, it, there's there's a lot of kind of world building that you have under your belt with previous series and things. This is kind of starting from a from a different sort of slate, right? Completely, I mean, you do yeah. have a you do have another you have the another Tinkered Star book uh, with Prudrat, but uh, yes, yeah. yes, yeah, I have two uh, actually. So <laughs> yeah, so it's not it's not as if it's a it's a total reset, but it's still a world that is comparatively new for you, and you yeah. kind of with your choice to write all three books within the Tinkered Star Song trilogy at once you've kind of really had an opportunity to sit in that world and figure out its nuts and bolts and kind of make it all contiguous. Yes. And I'm wondering how much of that choice making is driven by looking back at what you did before and going, man, if I had it to do over, I don't know. <laughs> oh, what a very telling question. Um, it was, oh, that's really interesting. Are we are we talking like Douglas Adams never blow up the earth in chapter one because you might need it later kind of thing? <laughs> um, which mean, in my just... case is like never ban vampires from uh, floating in a dirigible because you might need to put them into the air. Um, yeah, yeah I, I there are definitely lessons I have learned in terms of like world building from mm. the act of having written um, sequential series is in one universe where uh, the book got published and then I had to like meet the expectations of that book. Couldn't go back and take it off the shelf and make corrections to it, which mm -hmm. let me tell you, I would have loved to have done. Um, which one of those things is like, don't lay in rules of a universe that like are not pertinent or germane to that series yeah. or that book, right? Like don't give yourself Keep it a behind your back until you need it. Precisely. Like, cause yeah. you might not want it that way. Exactly. You might want to reuse it in a different way. Um, so that's like kind of one of those toolkit tricks. I've definitely am using that with the Tinkered, well, the Tinkered Stars in general is a is an, um, a sci-fi universe that I've been playing with since high school. Actually, mm -hmm. my best friend and I invented the way the or my two best friends and I invented <clears throat> the way FTL work. Like the two big questions of uh, sci-fi if you're going to write, which is, are there aliens and how did they evolve and how did they exist? And then faster than light travel, how do you travel between the stars? Like those are the two things, pretty much the two big tech things that any sci-fi has to answer unless it's near future. Um, and so we kind of invented all of those things when I was in high school. And I'm so, and Crabbit was actually the second book I ever wrote um, while, uh, while a full-time author, I guess you would say. So I wrote uh, Crudrat um, before I wrote Changeless. Mm -hmm. And then I just had it on the back burner for years. So I have been playing in this universe for a really long time, but it's definitely the case. Like my first beta readers are already coming back with the, this this book, which it isn't coming out until June 1st, but the beta readers have it ahead of time. And, uh, and have questions about like the aliens and how they evolved and the expansion of this of colonization within these, this planetary universe. And I was like, yeah, I know all of that, but I haven't revealed it in these books because I'm not sure when I need to deploy it in future books or whatever. You know, there are mm -hmm. definite hints as to what is going on and I mm -hmm. certainly know it, but, and that is, that is absolutely a lesson learned from the Parasolvers <laughs> being like, well, we yeah. keep some stuff yeah. in reserve. Plus I think Almost all genre readers in part read for the mystery of the discovery of the universe. Like we all, there's a mystery element 
that comes from the gothics, which, you know, all commercial genre kind of has its roots in the gothics, which is this idea that like either it's an actual mystery, in which case you're writing a mystery novel, um, or there's a mystery about how the magical system works that you and your readers are discovering as you read that epic fantasy mm-hmm. book, or there's a mystery around how the aliens came to be or whatever that you're mm-hmm. reading the space opera for. Um, I think that that's a, an important craving in readers of all of these genres. It's certainly something I enjoy. And so long as you like lay it out in a way that is satisfying to those readers, yeah. they'll keep going because they want to know more, hopefully. It's also important to just leave certain things unknown because then I, I think we get I, as writers i think we get really excited about our own work and we get proud of it and we should go go us we we done good um <laughs> so pat on the back there but i think sometimes especially in in the early stages of sort of like world creation and stuff there's so much like hunger for to prove that we understand our own world that we're just like and this stuff and yes. <laughs> there's this over explaining of things and over advertisement of things that in addition to what you're saying about it maybe coming back to bite you at some later point because now you need more flexibility than you granted yourself, there's also the reality of you're denying some kind of white space in mm. which the reader's brain can operate. Yeah. Like maybe the reader doesn't need all of those details spelled out and there's some value for them not quite knowing what the fashion is under these circumstances or what right. the – you know, whether it's a matter of like the scene setting and its dressings or if it's a matter of, um, you know, the political, uh, you know, economy or like the ecology of whatever. It's like maybe we could just kind of like, I don't know, let them figure out what a space zoo looks like beyond certain things. See, what see, see yeah. this. I, I like this because like uh, I always thought the weeping angels in Doctor Who were perfect and scary, just terrifying. And every time they brought them back, they got less terrifying, less perfect, because they kept trying to explain where they come from, what are they, you know. And so each subsequent use just lessened mm-hmm. the impact. I, I feel like if they had just done the one episode and then never went back to them, that mm-hmm. would stand as the most terrifying aliens in Doctor Who. Yeah. And and but they couldn't like Moffat has to keep going back and back and back yeah. and back and back and back. <laughs> he loves and back. A revisit. Yeah, yeah. I I'm, I could not agree more. And also to dovetail off of that, I think the readers of genre, like you said, kind of like to dwell in this void a little bit. I think genre readers in particular, sci-fi and fantasy, really like um, to let their own imaginations fly. And to a certain extent, if you're cutting some of the descriptions or like pulling back on info dumping and things like that, it actually shows that you trust your readers. And and Mm -hmm. that's a good thing because A, readers like to be trusted, but B, you can. You can trust sci-fi and fantasy readers in particular because they accept the fact that uh, the Ansible, the word Ansible is going to be dropped at the beginning in the first chapter of the book. And we're going to learn what that word means eventually. We're going to learn about these alien creatures eventually readers of this genre like particularly trust their authors to like we'll get there and we don't mind dwelling in a little bit of confusion over this matter because we trust that in Mm -hmm. fact it's really interesting when you're like looking to hire uh, developmental editors for something 
as an independent author is that it can always tell whether that editor comes out of science fiction and fantasy or, or romance or contemporary or lit because the editors who get frustrated with not knowing the secrets of the universe are not native readers to that genre, um, mm-hmm. which is why it's really important to make sure you have an editor that, that is you know, comfortable with the genre you're writing in. But, mm-hmm. um, but the, and that's because the readers are innately trusting yeah, because we're yeah. used to it, right? We're used to like the puzzle being part of the fun. Mm-hmm. It, it's funny that you say that because the the I, I've talked about this before, but the very first thing I ever wrote that actually had an editor was a fan thing for a fanzine, and it was a Star Trek fanzine. And I, I sent this thing off, and and the the guy who was running the fanzine actually hired a new editor to help him, and the new editor had no knowledge of star trek (laughs) and this was a star trek fanzine and so he's sitting here and he's sending me and this is when we're this is mail snail mail like there's no there's no email like he's sending me letters and he's telling me in these letters you can't do this because you know what's that you can't make these words up you can't bump and i'm like this is star trek dumbass (laughs) (laughs) you know so it even then it was important and, and so now today with readers being, I, I kind of want to say as sophisticated as they are and, and, and so invested in the genre, uh, you have to have someone who knows. You have to. They, they have to be able to, to your point, know Ansible and know that that's going to be something that the reader has read in something else. And they're going to, they're going to automatically make connections to what that means and how that's going to affect communication and stuff within this universe. Yeah. Or, which, or which, back to... I'm sorry. Go ahead. Just really quickly, that brings to mind this other idea, which is if you do too much of a a prologue or too much of an explanation of your world building or whatever, the readers can feel talked down to, like infantilized in a way. Like they can feel like, no, we're we're here. We're we're ready. We picked up a book with a dragon on the cover. Like we understand (laughs) that eventually the dragon's presence will be explained to us. Like you don't have to tell us immediately. Um, Yeah. So that sometimes in an effort, I think newer reader, newer writers do, will do this, like in an effort to show how much background work they've done and how well and complex their world building is, they actually make their readers feel like they, the author, think that the reader is stupid. <laughs> That's because yeah. you don't want to do that either. Mm-hmm. Do you got to find that balance? Those, as you know, Bob, sort of moments. Exactly. Like, uh, yeah. Someone has to have this explained, so I'm going to have this guy who already knows the thing talk to that guy who already knows the thing. Bland. Got it. I mean, I mean, the secret, it, like, I, I mean, I, I've been doing a lot more teaching um, in the last five years or so than ever before. Um, and like the, the real secret, and I always go back to this, is like, imagine yourself sitting around the fire and telling a really good story. Like, that's what the readers want. The readers just want a great yarn. They want a really sure. great story. And that applies whatever, you know, so long as you're telling a fictional story, that's that's what people are into. Um, and yeah, and all of this other stuff, you can get a little buyered in it as first time authors, I think in particular. Um, okay. Yeah. And so where are you teaching? Where am I teaching? Uh, I mostly just do like writers cons and conferences Ah, and I do a lot of, um, I've been doing a lot of, I mean, like everybody else, a lot of zoom, um, writers groups and and that sort of stuff. Cause I wrote nonfiction for the first time, um, in 2019 and suddenly everybody was you like, you came on the show. I know. And suddenly everyone's <laughs> like, we, we can have Gail teach us. 
Um, <laughs> and uh, turns out I like it a lot. I like teaching a lot. Um, so, so I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, this is not me blowing smoke up your ass. Okay. <laughs> but it, it's funny because uh, I have the Kindle app on my iPad and that's what I use to, to read uh, eBooks. And every, like, I, I just kept going back to your nonfiction book. The, the, the heroine's journey. And I just, I, I kept rereading like certain chapters of it because it just, it just made sense to me it, 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 because I had, as you know, I, I've, I've written female characters and it just made sense that, cause I even did it without thinking about it, but like I surrounded a, a female character with a group of people who were all helping her, but I didn't have the structure that you, that you laid out in that book. Yeah. You, I mean, the structure is just a beat pattern that yeah. some, you know you follow or don't follow I feel like like sort of the premise and the theme is sort of what you're looking for it's it's been really interesting to me this is something that I was thinking about reserving for the pick of the week but we can talk about it now which is I've been watching with great interest and delight uh, the rise of cozy and so mm. we've had cozy mysteries for a very long time but it seems like with Becky Chambers and now uh, Travis Baldry's legends and lattes we're getting cozy sci-fi like core cozy sci-fi like really hitting it out of the park and also cozy fantasy um and these are sort of comforting character driven um i mean like the the legends and lattes is a, a novel of high fantasy and low stakes which i think is just great and like really defines the genre um and it's just it's these are all heroines journeys about found family about like building a network often building a network in place like they're not even travelogues often um but that's I love this. I love books that make me feel like kind of a hot water bottle hug of a book. Um, So I'm really, and I think, you know, obviously sign of our times, what people are looking for to read right now is, is things that make them feel warm and fuzzy. Um, But it's been really exciting to me to watch the genres rise and be recognized as, 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 you know, and be given a name and everything, you know. Names of power, so yeah. especially in marketing. <laughs> I think in kind of a weird way, I, I, I'm making up this thesis on the spot. So if it's shot full of holes, I have no particular concerns. Um, but yeah, I, I, I thinking about this idea of we are at a place where we're sort of hungering for for cozy or for comfort or for some kind of affirmation from from our media. I'm thinking about that in terms of like the Ryan Johnson, um, Benoit Blanc sort of mysteries, right? Where we have characters both in Knives Out and then now Glass Onion who are just profoundly awful people. Just they're 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 all terrible, but they're all terrible in like you know <laughs> different sorts of ways that dovetail together to borrow your your word into a, a particular sort of furnishing piece of awfulness, right? And the and we have the the sort of spoiled entitlement of wealth in the first and the second we have this sort of um like the conglomeration of self-important influencers and and so on and people who see themselves as as the real operating core of how the world works. And as their oppositional force, we've got this detective who just cares about the right thing coming out, who keeps aligning himself with single women with whom he has no romantic chemistry or interest in the slightest who also have been in some way wronged or stuck in the middle of these like fundamentally awful people. And it's just, these are mysteries that are about 
two decent people who are smart and committed to doing the right thing, figuring out how to stick it to dickheads. <laughs> and I think there are a lot of us who are sort of like, yes, get them. <laughs> you know, this is, is it, it is the ultimate satisfaction of comeuppance giving coming from this male female character dynamic that is is not in any way based in romance or sexuality or anything like that it's just based in the mutual desire to do the right thing and like figuring buddy, out together like how are we going to do that it's a buddy cop dynamic or i would call Kinda, it yeah um yeah there's a what was i going to say uh i'm thinking about leverage from what you just mm. said which kind of op- the robin hood uh, trope or, or 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 archetype, this idea of sort of sticking it to the man by being extremely clever and uh, coordinating and operating together. The other thing, interesting thing, I find with the rise of something like um, *Knives Out* or even to a certain extent like *Bridgerton* and things like that, is there's a there's a like a movement of what I would call archetype these char- these character archetypes into caricature. Um, where they sort of, you can see the mustache twirling, you know, it's not exactly there, but I wouldn't put it past them, um, which kind of ties to sort of, uh, camp and panto and slapstick and this, a particular form of comedy, um, which, which does tend to have a, a, a wave pattern in, in kind of Western appeal, at least I think, um, its current rise is in part due to the influence of um, anime and now like Halu and, and Asian dramas, which have never lost specifically the camp component um, as part of their sort of core uh, funny bone. <laughs> uh, I happen to like it, but I understand, you know, like I've always uh, enjoyed, like, for example, Wes Anderson's the sort of clarity of staging and super candy colored brightness um, I, I really enjoy that aspect in in my film, um, mm-hmm. but it, it definitely kind of has waves of, waves of popularity as well. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we you kind of um, you know spoiled slightly your your <laughs> pick of the week energy there, but I think we we all still want to play along, and I have a feeling you probably uh, because of your churup, which is a darling name for your for your newsletter, uh, <laughs> probably you. have a whole lot more up your sleeve too. So. I do. Are we gonna Are we gonna move to the picks of the week? Do we Do we yeah, have so. a, Okay. Do we Do we have a Do you drop we, the We We, we do. Thing? Yeah, it's great. Okay. Wait for it. Here it comes. I'm ready. Picks of the week. So uh, on the theme of like kind of camp and uh, kind of coziness, where we are now, like if I had slipped you five bucks, I couldn't have gotten a better segue out of you, Gail. So thank you. Um, so my longtime listeners or even listeners who have been with us for like a single episode know that I have a daughter. I have a son as well, but he doesn't come up as, as, as often on the podcast because um, he is he is a darling creature and first in my heart, but uh, not quite the ferocious entity that Deirdre is. So Deirdre, God lover, um, more or less commands my television viewing life because I don't have much time to watch television to begin with. And whenever I do, she wants me to watch television with her. So basically I end up watching whatever it is Deirdre wants to watch. How and old she's is been she? on a, uh, she is 11 going okay. on 30. Got it. Um, okay. so, um, yeah. So she's anyway, um, she keeps referring to herself as a teenager now. And I'm like, that's not how math works, honey, but you go off. Um, anyway, she, 
has been on a tear for a while that is in part my fault because about, I don't know, six months ago or so, I showed her um, Nailed It, which is, of course, the Netflix baking show where people are shown extremely elaborate, gorgeous cakes that they have no hope of making because they are utterly incompetent bakers. And it is just this like sort of joyful process of them imploding uh, and often the cakes literally imploding as they try to make them and imitate them. And because of the recommendation algorithm on Netflix, she has landed on a new disaster cake weird thing (laughs) called Is It Cake, which is Netflix's show that is based off of the internet phenomenon that we all saw in the last couple of years of things that look a hell of a lot like, oh, I don't know, a log or a pet cat (laughs) or whatever. And then someone takes a knife to it. You're like, Jesus, no. And it turns out it's a cake. Um, And so hyper-realistic cakes. And so this, the, she showed me all of one episode of it and damn it. I think I Uh have to keep watching. Is it cake? (laughs) So the framework of it is thus. Obviously you can't do this with like everyday incompetent baker type people like you do with nailed it. You need professionals. And so they have found a group of nine different extremely talented bakers and these nine different extremely talented bakers, many of whom run their own shops, specialize in making cakes that look like not cake um, and with airbrushing and, you know, fondant modeling and all kind of stuff. And they all come on the show and there is a there is a process by which they pick which three of them will be the competitors. It has a little bit of an Iron Chef vibe to it from back in the day in that respect. The three of them get up there and they're given an array of objects within a theme to choose to imitate. Like, for instance, they might have six different types of fast food. And they have to choose one of those, and there are no repeats. So you can do the burger and fries, and one other person can do the tacos, and this person can do the milkshakes or whatever. But they get to choose from that body of stuff what they're going to make to imitate. They have however long to make and imitate. And then they bring in guest judges um, who are, for whatever reason, suitable for this. They are culinary experts. They're uh, hosts of other food television shows. Um, They're celebrities whose agents got them on. They're whatever. And so (laughs) they're there. And then the the objects are put in an array. These, These cake objects are put in an array of decoys that have been chosen by the bakers. And so, for instance, if this lady's making a burger and fries, but actually cake, she gets to choose from a bunch of different that the that the like um, craft services people have put together actual burgers and fries that look different in various different ways and hide hers among them. And the guest judges are then told there are five objects here. One of them is cake. Which one is it? And they have to guess and they have to like come to an agreement amongst themselves and argue it out and whatnot. And if the baker fools them, they get a multi-thousand dollar prize and advance to the next round of the competition and so on. And so uh, as you can imagine, it is just bonkers. Um, and it, one of the really interesting elements of it that kind of helps people like me who know absolutely dick about making fantastically complicated cakes like this is the remaining bakers who are not chosen to go up and compete sit there on a panel watching their fellow competitors who are doing the baking do their thing and they shout questions at them about what they're doing or like, why are you doing that? And so it results in this kind of like commentary dynamic where you're getting a little bit of insight into what the deal is. And of course it's fun and it's silly and they do things like take samurai swords to chop open the objects to test (laughs) if they're cake or not. 
So if you're into <laughs> weird stuff that is utterly without merit, um, except insofar as it makes you happy and satisfies your weird stuff thing, <laughs> I guess uh, my pick of the week by way of Deirdre is, is it cake on Netflix? Brilliant. <laughs> I love it. I love Trump Loy. I always have. Um, this is I'm going to dovetail really quickly into my prior existence which was I used to be an archaeologist for anybody who doesn't know Um, but I I wasn't working in Herculaneum but I was visiting it Um, I can't remember if it was Herculaneum or Pompeii I'm pretty sure it was Herculaneum uh, because I think it's excavated better and uh, there's a room you you can go into um, where the the front area uh, and, and you can kind of walk through the villa, uh, you know, there's no roof or anything on it, and then back into the backyard. And they've sort of recreated, they took like root samples or root uh, casts and then recreated what the um, vegetation and the layout of the of the backyard would be. Um, and it's all very cool and I was very excited about it. But if you go back into it, you can see that they uh, muraled or uh, the wall around a window there so that it looked exactly like the vegetation would have looked in the backyard. Yeah. So it was like, you know, obviously. Is it, it Herculaneum? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> obviously, it's not, ex- it wouldn't have been exactly perfect, but I, uh, yeah, knowing yeah. their skill set, it probably would have been very, very close. Um, mm. I love that kind of thing. I think it's so cool. That's awesome. My turn. Okay, so nose goes. One of you gotta get the thing. <laughs> well, well, Gail, you're you you had a pick of the rise of cozy sci-fi and fantasy. Do you have another pick that you would like to talk about? Yeah. So, and and actually, my pick dovetails really, really well <laughs> with Tracy. Okay. So I'm really excited about it because it goes with the food theme. <laughs> um, so this is not genre super geeky, but it is uh, art style super geeky. I'm gonna pick a manga. Um, as my pick of the week, and it is available in the U.S. in translation. I double-checked in both paperback and digital. Um, and the manga is called Our Dining Table by Mita Ori, or Ora. I, I don't know how to pronounce her name, but um, it's fantastic. It's uh, it's just a sweet, tiny little contemporary love story, but it revolves entirely around Japanese food. And the she's an incredible artist and the drawings of the food are just beautiful. And it's, it's just this, and it is the coziest, the lowest stakes, sweetest little book you have ever read in your life. I just can't, <laughs> I cannot recommend it highly enough. It's getting an adaptation right now. And the adaptations seem to be just following the book. So like, it's just adorable and sweet and beautiful food and nothing is happening. And I love it to death. Um, <laughs> so yeah, so the book is a manga called Our Dining Table. And everybody should read it immediately. It will make you feel so happy. It's just it's just a little serotonin rush. It's, it's adorable. That's awesome. I have, uh, I'm, I'm doing back-to-back twofers. So in the last episode, I did two picks. And in this episode, I'm doing two picks. And uh, one of them is is tied slightly to Gale. Uh, but the, so the first one is a show that just dropped on Netflix. It's called The Diplomat. Mm-hmm. And this is starring uh, Carrie Russell. I've been hearing a lot of chatter about this one, actually. I am loving that show. She she is she has changed so much, and she does so many of these really great characters now, in my opinion. And this is this is one, and this is a a character who is assigned to become the ambassador, uh, the U.S. ambassador to Great Britain. Hmm. 
And but she is she is just such a kind of like uh, fuck it all kind of character. Like, like she drops F-bombs all the time. She's very hands-on. She's very, I'm going to do stuff. And, and, and she kind of comes from a background of, of working with spies. And so she has all these connections. And then her husband is a former U.S. ambassador uh, played by Rufus Sewell or Swell or however you want to say. I don't know. Sewell. But, uh, and, and he's a troublemaker. And like he just causes trouble, and so she she actually wants him gone most of the time. Like she just wants him to leave. And there's a ton of stuff going on in the background. And there it all starts off with a, a British uh, carrier being hit, being attacked, uh, and then she's sent there, and and stuff just starts to unfold. And I'm loving the show. It's so good. There's there's political stuff. There's there's thriller spy stuff going on. There's the characters and and the interactions between Carrie Russell's character and Rufus's character, and then this great British foreign office guy, and uh, it's just so much stuff going on. So I'm really really enjoying that. Now <clears throat> the one that kind of reminds me a little of Gail is whenever I've done critique groups, whenever I've you know talked to writers and stuff, one of the compliments that I get is great dialogue. People say I write great dialogue. I think Gail writes great dialogue. And so when people say, where do you go to get, like, how do I learn to do great dialogue? I will point to certain things like Gail's books. I will point to the Gilmore Girls. I always thought that the Gilmore Girls is a great source for dialogue. And then there's another show uh, created by the same folks who did uh, Gilmore Girls that is now in its final season on Prime, and that's The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Mm. And so they dropped three episodes and of season five, which is the final ep- ep- season. And seven minutes into the first episode, I could not breathe. <laughs> I was laughing so hard. I had to pause it. And the dog was worried about me. Like <laughs> to the point where he comes over to Dad, me. And he's I cannot like, do CPR. What's going on? Do not Are you okay? Because <laughs> I, I couldn't stop laughing. <laughs> It just cracked me up. And it's these interactions. It's it's uh, Abe and Rose Weissman. It's it's Midge Maisel and it's her manager and the kids. And all this stuff is happening all at the same time. And I'm dying laughing because it's just so snappy. Yeah. It's so snappy. It's like boom, boom, boom. And Abe Weissman, you know, going, how did you get in? Well, I, I have the key. You guys gave me the key. Well, I think the the whole thing, like this whole situation could be solved if you just give me the key back. And everybody's like, Abe, leave the key alone. And she's like, I'm not giving you the fucking key back. And and it's just back and forth and back. And I'm dying. And like two minutes later, there's a callback and Abe's going, well, I think the problem is that you have the key and you just need to give me the key back. And it's like, we've left the key. No one's talking about the key anymore. And I, I, I'm just dying. So The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, season five. Is dropping. There's, I believe now there's four episodes as of this recording. So by, probably in a couple of weeks there'll be six. Um, but it's such a great show, such snappy uh, dialogue. I just love it. I, I feel for the actors who have to learn this shit. I think it's worse than Trekno Babble. I really do. Yeah. I, I saw an interview with Brent Spiner uh, with Michael Rosenbaum, and he's talking about uh, that he liked it when they moved in the Next Generation to. Uh, character-centric episodes because it gave them a break. So if it was going to be a Riker episode, Brent Spiner didn't have to learn a ton of Trekno babble overnight 
to like do stuff. And then he's like, then I would have an episode where it's all focused on me and everybody else would have a break. He goes, the one that killed me was one week there was an episode about data. And then the next week they also had an episode about data. And I had 12 hours to learn an entire new script full of stuff. And I told them, you're killing me. I can't do this. So I like, I feel bad for the actors, but other than that, like just entertain me. It's interesting that you mention it along with the diplomat. Cause, uh, that also has very good dialogue, I understand. And yes. I think part of, people have been talking about like the showrunners behind it and stuff. And one of the things that people keep forgetting is that Grey's Anatomy, one of the showrunners was a Grey's Anatomy person, which also has very good dialogue. It's like yeah. these tricks kind of transcend genre in a way. Um, so it is worth, I mean, and, and transcend whatever media you're writing in. Like it is worth looking at television if you're writing books to see how they handle dialogue and character as dialogue. I mean, um, one of the things I always think about with dialogue is making sure that the character who says it is the character who would say that, you know, and in that way. Yeah. Right. Um, I mean, you can use that to surprise your readers if a character says something unexpected that you wouldn't expect from them, of course. But like most of the time, you know, like that character has to say that thing because they would say that and in that like sentence structure and stuff like that. Um, yeah. I'm always getting into fights with my, I'm in copy edit phase right now on the second book in this Tinker Star Song series. And I'm always getting into fights with my copy editors because they tried to edit the grammar of my dialogue. And I was like, people don't talk like that <laughs> like even in the far <laughs> even in the far future yeah. you know like people speak without semicolons for example like most of the time like they just speak in fragments or run-ons or what have you yeah there, there's a great quote from uh, several of the actors who who were part of buffy would, would talk about they would get a script and they would go this isn't my line this is a willow line or no this is a xander line i can't say this and, and like they knew yeah. And, and so it was just this thing where lines would kind of get moved around. And that's the flexibility. I mean, that's building a cast that complements each other. And in the heroine's journey, I talk about the fact that like you build groups because people have different skill sets and they want to balance each other out. And like, you know, so that's part of it too. But also like that, I mean, that's the beauty of working with a flexible showrunner, but also with, you know, a flexible, a cast that really knows that's a long running cast. I I imagine Next Gen had this happen a lot too, which is like, everybody just knows who they are so well as those characters that they kind of just innately know whether it's their line or not, but also if it is their line, whether it should be said in that way or whether it's, yeah, yeah. exactly. Good talk. (laughs) good job team good job (laughs) so you have a lot to look forward to in the Carragherverse where can people find all the good stuff that you're cooking up Uh, just find me on my website that's where everything is it's easiest it's and then you can decide if you want to follow me or I recommend belonging to the newsletter it's it's way more fun Uh, and it's only once a month so it's not a big commitment or anything Uh, but that's Gail G-A-I-L Carragher, C-A-R-R-I-G-E-R.com. But if you just Google Gail Carragher, it should be good. And uh, yeah, and the new book is Divinity 36. Thanks, Gail. It's awesome (laughs) to have you on. It's a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. All good things. Here we are at the end again. But there's some stuff you should probably know before you go. First, consider heading over to beyondthetrope.com and checking out their podcast. It's a lot of fun. Giles and Michelle have been around for nearly a decade now, I think, having fun chats with writers, artists, actors, and more. 
They put out a new episode every Tuesday and have something like 430 overall in the can, I think, as of this recording. It might be 431, I don't know. But that means there's plenty there for you to dive into. Second, if you liked this episode of The Functional Nerds, consider giving us a couple of stars on your favorite podcast platform or posting about this episode or any of our episodes on your favorite social media platform. Tell your friends about us. Have them come over. We would really appreciate that part. If you buy a book mentioned on the podcast, let us know on social media. Tag us. Tag the author. That's always so much fun, and it really, really drives home that we help sell books every once in a while. Now, if you really, really, really enjoyed this episode, you could head over to patreon.com slash functional nerds and give us a couple of bucks. I mean, that helps to keep the lights on. We like that. It's kind of hard to podcast in the dark. You can get access to some cool stuff like a pretty engaged and vibrant super secret Facebook group, a monthly virtual hangout, or even an extra episode. It's called the Just Us episode of the podcast. And it's exclusively at this point for our Patreon backers. So if you just want to hear Tracy and I talk about stuff, that might be where you need to go. Other than that, Huh. What do we think about Mando season three? Mr. Carpiers, you got it right. How about that? Yeah. You can call me Cannoli Joe. If you've if you've never listened to the podcast, there there's there's two different styles here. There's there's Tracy who does prep work and comes up with some very thoughtful questions, and then oh squirrel. Oh, for God's sake, Patrick Louise. <laughs> Are you okay with me recording you today for the purposes of this podcast? Okay. That's probably a good enough signal. <laughs> when someone comes up to me and says, Hey, I really love what you do. I'm like, I'm sorry. Do you know who I like? I think you have me confused with someone else. The whiz bang and the gosh, wow. And the sense of wonder stuff. My favorite thing about time travel is I actually had a time travel joke for you guys, but you didn't like it. I'm so excited. <laughs>